This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sober Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. This season's podcast is sponsored by a great new startup called Tweak Life. They have built a well-being hub full of useful information of tweaks that you can make, including mindfulness, nutrition, exercise, managing addictions, improving your finances and even the menopause. The last few years have been really tough for us all. And with this in mind, Louise created this hub hoping to help individuals and businesses offer this to their employees and apply some of these tweaks to make a difference to people's lives. This is free to use, so for more information, please go to tweaklife.co.uk. My guest today on One for the Road is a cheeky chappy from Southend, who at the depths of his addiction to alcohol, like me, was drinking a litre of vodka a night. Since his decision to quit in 2020, he has turned his life around and is now passionate to help others who are struggling with alcohol and substance abuse. It gives me great pleasure to welcome to you, Michael Sargood. Good afternoon, Michael. Welcome to my podcast, One for the Road. This is round two for us, isn't it? Because we tried the other day and it all went wrong with the internet and the Zoom link yeah. and everything. You did, you did all your hair and everything, didn't you? And but you're looking even more glamorous today. So, well, thank you. I barely crawled out of bed today um, and made zero effort for you. So I apologise. <laughs> for that. Well, you do look well, actually, and um, you just recently celebrated uh, 500 days of. Wonderful sobriety, haven't you? 500 days of sobriety and some of those wonderful. You're quite right there. 
<laughs> As you know, mate, um, these uh, podcasts are all about life stories. And I actually, when I see you on social media, you're a bit of a Mickey taker sometimes, but people love you for that. But also, you do say some serious things, and you're very generous with sharing people's stories as well. And I think your um, presence on social media is is brilliant, mate. So I want to thank you in advance for that. Thank you very much. Yeah, I, I do try to combine a bit of fun, but with a bit of seriousness. I think it's, it's a. I don't know if I sometimes cross the line a bit with the Mickey taking. We'll see. But um, I do have a, a message that I want to get across that is more serious because alcohol's nearly ruined my life and I know a lot of other people are in a similar situation Um, and recovery can be sometimes especially at the beginning excruciatingly boring I found because we don't actually know how to uh, how to live life fully without it if we've been on the bottle for a good while Um, so I just try and inject a little bit of fun in there and it's and it's needed as well because um, I mean I did a live this morning at eight o'clock um, with another coach and he was brilliant actually he wasn't grilling me but I also said it's not all about jumping out of planes and uh, joining a gym and running marathons it's about sitting with your feelings and actually allowing yourself to be bored without picking up the bottle isn't it and I think that's what you put across quite well is that um, normal life does go on. And there are parts of the, you know, I hate the word journey, but there are parts of it that you have to really like sit with, aren't there? And uh, I think you put that across well as well. I think there's um, a lot a lot of accounts out there and I, I like them for it. They show how wonderful life can be um, without alcohol. And that's really important. You've got something to aspire to. Um, but when I was sort of first drying out, um, my life didn't seem much like that. There wasn't much of a pink cloud. And a lot of the time it was disturbed sleep, wanting to drink but not being able to, having no idea how to fill all these 25 hours a week that I'd got back from my life. Um, and it was learning how to manage boredom or actually how to not be bored by doing something else. Um, I, I find a lot more now that I can identify in these accounts that show how wonderful life can be without booze but for the first three to six months um it was a it was a lot of boredom and people say to you don't they when you get when you first stop drinking oh god isn't isn't that boring and I was thinking actually yes at the moment is because I've got bugger all clue what to do with all this time now and like all my friends are out there on the pub and I'm on Facebook or Instagram and I can see them with my old best mate alcohol having a great time and i'm just sitting here with a cat and watching country watch um and it wasn't quite it wasn't and i had been to some some meetings and um i've I've been through the aa process and i remember sitting in those thinking oh god i can't swap the pub for this sitting in a in a a drafty church hall hearing people's war stories all the time that's that's not a good trade um it works for a lot of people and it was actually working for me as well but I just needed something else in my life and for a good while it took it was um I was struggling to find what that was I think I'm getting there now 500 days in yeah it's quite a pivotal period actually 500 days but so what led you up to realizing that you had a problem because you was a bit of a late starter in this world wasn't you yeah I think I was a late starter by British standards because I didn't really drink at all until I was 17 I grew up in a household where it wasn't particularly boozy um stepmom liked a couple of glasses of wine social occasions 
I think a couple of times I'd seen her have more than that. And my dad, um, he's just turned 71. And I can honestly say I've only ever in my life seen him once drunk. And that was unintentional because my brother convinced him that Sambuca was only 4%. So he got a bit tipsy that night. But my dad's not a drinker, never really has been. Maybe a small glass of sherry at, a, at Christmas and a half a glass of the champagne at a wedding but he doesn't like alcohol he says he doesn't like how he feels like he's not in control and that's pretty much exactly the same reason why I did like it it let me feel like I I wasn't in control I lost all my inhibitions I like I loved alcohol for the same reason that my dad hates it because he he likes to be in control of himself at all point at all times and uh so yeah I didn't really start drinking till I was 17 I had took a bottle of wine um, to a, it was a New Year's Eve bash. It was really pathetic because I had hardly any friends, surprisingly. Um, There's a couple of other people there and they didn't want to drink it. So I just drank the whole bottle of red wine on my own and vomited. And that was New Year's Eve done. Um, But I did discover at that point that I liked the effect. I absolutely hated the taste, but the effect uh, was, was brilliant. It sort of released this euphoria and I could just let myself loose and not be so I, I suppose I've always been growing up I was always someone who suffered from anxiety a bit um growing up sort of gay in the 90s in a fairly conservative part of the UK um I was always on guard about I didn't want I didn't want people to pick on me or punch me generally that was the that was the mode I operated out of don't um stand out don't get picked on and punched and then when I had some alcohol in my system I could let all those worries go and when I first stopped drinking I realized actually I'm still quite a socially anxious person it's just as soon as I go into a social situation within two minutes I've got a drink in my hand and I don't worry about it and now as soon as I stopped drinking it was oh god um, I'm back to being a teenager again an anxious teenager in a room full of strangers and somehow I've got to uh, I've got to deal with this anxiety and these these emotions that I don't want. And I suppose in a way, I think alcohol, when you start drinking, your emotional development kind of stops because all of a sudden you've got this crutch that you can rely upon. They I mean they call it Dutch courage. It does give you courage, but when you haven't got it, you haven't actually developed any courage, have you? You've just learned to to, to self-medicate any insecurities that you have. That's a really good point, actually. Uh, and uh, when I was younger, we rarely sort of had pre-drinks before we went out. We, we'd start drinking when we went out. And these days, people do do pre-drinks. And I did in the last few... Well, I didn't go out for the last 10 years. I don't think I'd become a complete recluse when I was drinking. Because I couldn't... It's weird with me. I couldn't drink enough when I went out. And, and I kind of lived this facade that... I didn't have a drink problem because it got to such a problem that it was embarrassing. So when I went out, I'd only like really, really rein it in a bit until I got home again. It's a weird relationship, alcohol, isn't it? It lures you in many directions. I think we were quite similar in that because I've heard your podcast before and you're mentioning how you're in the end sort of on a bottle of vodka a day, which was the, the same as myself. Um, there was a, a stage in my drinking where... Every time I went out, I would completely embarrass myself, lose all my possessions. There was a good chance I wouldn't make it home. I'd woken up on the high street and on roundabouts and things before um, with no keys, no wallet, no phone. I got through three expensive mobile phones in six weeks. And I came to the conclusion 
that going out was too dangerous. And so instead of going out and not drinking, I decided it was better to stay at home and drink. I could do that on my own. And then there was a lot less chance of losing all my possessions and making an idiot of myself in public. And I wouldn't have to worry about getting home because I never left in the first place. I mean, that was what I chose over going out and being sociable. And I think things really spiraled in. I was going out every now and then, but it always ended in disaster. Or I think worse was when it didn't end in disaster. There would be the odd occasion where I'd go out, I'd um, I'd drink too much, but I somehow didn't have any catastrophic um, consequences. And then I'd convince myself that all I needed to do was replicate that magic formula. And then I'd be okay as a drinker because I didn't really want to give up drinking. I just wanted to avoid all the negative consequences of drinking, like the crippling mental health, um, being skinned constantly, remortgaging my flat and then spending the 15 grand I'd got for home improvements on alcohol and cigarettes. Um, and I thought that maybe I could learn to to moderate. But, you know, after years of trying and wrecking my life, I came to the conclusion that actually I probably never would be able to learn to moderate. And maybe if you have to learn to moderate, then you actually have a have a bit of a problem. You would have done it by now, wouldn't you? If you're trying to teach yourself to moderate, why aren't you already doing it? I pretty much think a lot of people listening to this podcast have tried that as well. And I, was it you that said there's a 5% um, of the population that can actually do it? That was actually a stat that I heard on your, your live-a-thon, Dave. Oh, there you go. And I've heard it elsewhere before. Yeah, and that's the thing, right? I always say, you know, it's like uh, dumping your ex and sleeping with them at the weekend. It's never going to work. <laughs> do you like that? Yeah, I do. And it's, yeah, I can't, I can't say I haven't done that before. But, you know, <laughs> it's the rose-tinted glasses, isn't it? Yeah. Things weren't that bad. We could just have, like, one for old time's sake. Yeah, but that's the, because we are in a relationship. I always say it, that we're in a relationship and it starts off when you were 17 and you're forever bed hopping and you're going away a weekend and it's all exciting and it's all fun, right? It's all fun. And when you're younger, you so, seem to ride the um, hangovers. You, I remember getting in at like five in the morning and going to work at seven and by eight, I was all right again. It's like I was a beast. But then it changes over the years, like a normal relationship, doesn't it? And it gets stale, then it starts controlling it. It's not like I've got bad, yeah, bad out yeah. of relationships, but it's, it's what's happened to me. And then, you know, we're, we're sort of controlled by it, aren't we? And then you're left in limbo land. And that, that's what I think I used to drink indoors because I, I've said before, I used to go into this weird vortex of drunkenness that felt weirdly safe for me because I wasn't involving anyone else and I wasn't, I knew how bad it was for me. So I, I didn't feel the shame of being out, like you saying, losing your phones or, or anything like that. I could actually get completely obliterated and I would know about it. I did exactly that. But I think I also made the mistake of thinking because I was keeping my drinking deliberately away from other people that somehow it wasn't affecting them. I used to think, well, look, I'm not drinking around you. I'm, I'm doing it on my own. Therefore, stop nagging me. I mean, because it's clear I've got a problem. But I've got, um, I've been in a relationship since where the other partner drinks heavily. And I, I kind of know now that you don't actually have to be drinking in front of someone for their behavior to affect, you know, just disappearing for two days, for example, without knowing whether a person is alive or dead is, is that does have an impact on you. Um, having to deal with someone's moods and temperament for days after they've been 
drinking or using drugs. I mean, that has an effect. And just not being able to trust someone because you always lie about your drinking. And if you're lying about your drinking, you then create more lies to cover up the first lie. And if there's no trust, that's affecting a relationship. So I thought that by hiding my drinking away, that um, I wouldn't have any impact on people. But that's actually a load of crap, isn't it? Because your behaviour always, if you're in addiction of some sort, it's always impacting other people, whether you're doing it in front of them or behind closed doors. You can't avoid it, mate. But I will say that my dad, um, when I told him, he didn't even know I had a problem. Uh, I kept it so well from him. Do you know what I mean? He, he had no idea about it. So it's a weird thing. I think it's who you're around, like in a relationship or close friends, it does come apparent, doesn't it? Because what you say about the mood as well, I, I used to be in a real, like, hate myself mood in the morning like a real sort of what have I become, who am I, why have I allowed this to happen kind of thing. And it, I used to go really insular in my my personality. But when the alcohol, when that feeling started to wear off in the afternoon, I used to become more jovial because I thought, well, I can start drinking again soon. Yeah, you've set yourself that sort of little uh, alarm clock mentally, haven't you? It's like, oh, it's nearly five o'clock. I'll be a yeah. uh, before long, I'll be back to my old self, you know, that, yeah. that bubbly self that allow, alcohol allows you to become, which is actually an embarrassing wreck normally. But, yeah, I, I, the self-loathing I can totally relate to. How has I let myself become this? Is this what I've amounted to? It's, yeah, it's, this is the constant shame of it. Um, it's hard to be positive about yourself when you're constantly doing something completely unavoidable, you know, poisoning yourself at your own will. Yeah. Um, having outcomes that you don't want. And, and quite a lot of the time we function in any other area, like we can actually parent the kids. We can go to work and do a full day's graft. We can speak at conferences. It's surprising the amount of people I know that look really, really on top of their game in life and they've got a real issue with alcohol. So it is quite a secret thing, isn't it, for a lot of us? And uh, there comes the shame and there's stigmatising as well around it. Because when you come out and you say, look, this is what I'm going to do, and they go, you haven't got a problem, Michael. You're, you're all right, mate. You cope all right. You just like the odd drink. Yeah, it's not that bad. You can learn to moderate. And then it's sort of, yeah, I think some people that I'm close to were surprised. Others weren't. Um, I tried my best to hide it from work. And um, this might surprise anybody who's followed my social media accounts, but I used to be sort of quite smartly dressed and well presented. And I would overcompensate for, for how rubbish I was feeling by making sure I got a freshly pressed shirt every morning. And I'd drink about sort of a half a litre of mouthwash, get the airwaves chewing gum, spray the uh, aftershave all over me. And that's just because I was trying maybe a little bit too hard to overcompensate for how rough I actually was. And now that I'm sober, I don't bother with any of that. I mean, I'm also working from home. So I, I just look like um, I'm, I look slightly homeless most of the time now. Um, I probably look more like I'm in addiction now than I did when I was in addiction. But, um, you know, you get those before and after photos. Yeah. If, I was, if I did a typical one of most of my days, you'd have thought they were the other way around. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I've heard now that you um, you go in all the charity shops and, and buy clothes. Which I, I actually think is brilliant, personally. Well, yeah, well, the thing is, I, I keep on getting fatter. First, when I uh, went sober, I, 
I was um, I was 14 and a half stone and I went down to just under 11. And then gradually I've um, managed to put most of it back on again. I weighed myself for the first time yesterday and I'm 14 stone and I can't keep on affording to buy new clothes every time I put on or lose weight. And so and also money's a bit tight at the moment. I mean, what are we paying for petrol and gas? And I've just decided I was going to do a year of just buying clothes from charity shops. I mean, some of them have been hideous choices. I've, I've got these handmade brown corduroys, which look absolutely awful. I don't know what to do with them, actually. But it was only two pounds. But yeah, so I suppose that's not really helping my image either, is that I'm just buying all my clothes from like Cat Rescue and uh, and some local charities. So it's it's not much of a style statement. I've got to learn to accessorise, I think. But yeah, it is helping with the old pennies. And then if I lose weight, then I haven't exactly spent hundreds on a new wardrobe or if I put on even more weight. But um, so that's something I'm trying to do. And it's actually quite fun. I've got some other friends locally who like going charity shopping and don't drink. And we'll make like a little social if it's like we've got one street near us. It's got loads of charity shops and some nice coffee shops on it. So we'll sort of meet up. We'll go through them all, have coffee and cake. And it's actually a nice social activity. And then we sort of go back and we can do a bit of a catwalk, show off all of our bargains. And it doesn't involve alcohol. Uh, it does involve cake. And I'm a big fan of that. And coffee. I need it. Uh, yeah, hence the three stone weight gain. But um, it's fine, mate. But the thing is, right, you say about that. Where Are you happier now in your cat rescue brown corduroys eating cake or back then when you had your finely pressed pink shirt on? Well, I think, I mean, overall, I am happier, but I, I, I look at happiness differently these days. Um, happiness, I used to associate with that sort of sense of euphoria that you would get from the first sort of one or two drinks, maybe like the first hour or two of actually going out drinking. That was my happy place. Everything else that followed for the next few days <laughs> would, would not be happy. And now I, my, my happiness is more sort of gentle it's more stable i don't go for those sort of huge highs which were fun let's not deny it i just go for like a steady medium i, I say to people I'm, I'm living life to the medium now i've tried to live it to the max i maxed myself out and now i'm living living life to the medium and I'm, I'm i'm going for contentment rather than happiness one thing i do regret is you don't get as many wild stories do you i mean when you tell people what you got up to the weekend these days and it was i ate some cake and bought some second-hand trousers it's never going to have quite the responses the the time you woke up in wales with a stranger and uh, any of those sorts of anecdotes but i'm I think I've got enough of those now and I'm ready to move on to the next stage of my life, which is a more genteel and, and dignified chapter, hopefully. Yeah. And it depends on your audience as well, because we change your audiences, don't we? Exactly. We, we align differently. But so going back to your drinking, at what stage did you realise you had to do something about it? Also, did you try and not succeed i'm always careful about how i say that because i hate the word fail but did you try to give up and it didn't work i've had loads of attempts of trying to give up um often followed fairly swiftly afterwards with convincing myself that i didn't really have a problem i mean i wasn't living under a bridge yet therefore i wasn't a proper alcoholic i first went to an aa meeting uh under a little bit of pressure from my partner at the time i have to admit i was doing it mainly to convince him that I was willing to change. That was back when I was 28 and I'm now 40 and I was living in York at the time. And I went there for a few weeks and I thought I'd done the uh, 
the minimum required to show that I was a changed person. And then I convinced myself that I, I wasn't really an alcoholic after all. And then I left that relationship, went into a new one. A similar thing happened. I had been drinking far too much. I'd become a bit of a of an asshole. It was causing arguments and things. I wanted to show that I was willing to change. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous, uh, convinced him that I'd done some work, and then slowly it crept back in again. And then I, I've had a few stints of sobriety. In the end, um, I, I signed up to the local drug and alcohol service and went on a, uh, they do a smart recovery program. And I went along to that sort of once a week, which probably isn't enough, but it was all that was available outside of my work hours because everything else was Monday to Friday, nine to five. And I didn't do any homework between each week and I wasn't really making any progress. And I lost my relationship there. Um, My partner moved out because of my drinking. I lost my driving license because of my drinking for driving the morning after, after being evicted from a campsite in Wales. And then I nearly lost my home. And at that point, I'd had a few attempts on my life. It was normally the morning after drinking and I'd just overdose on any meds that I had around the house. And I always had loads of meds around the house. It was like a pharmacy. And then I've got a friend who's now my partner now he also struggled a lot with drink and with mental health and he said to me at one point I just want to die or have a real shot at life and that was something that really hit me because I've I'd only thought I just want to die and then he'd use that powerful word or after going through a really terrible time himself and the or was the complete opposite of wanting to wanting to die it was actually there, there is that possibility you could die or you could do your best to make your life amazing. And that is an option. And why not try that one out before you have another overdose? Like before you've decided it's all, it's, it's all for nothing. Why don't you have a really good shot? I know it's going to be difficult to stop because I've tried before with unlimited success, but I can invest a few months of feeling like absolute crap if it means the rest of my life is a happy one. And I, that's why I took that plunge after a few rock bottoms. The particular day when the last time I drank, I'd lost over 24 hours to blackout. I mentioned on your live that I'd um, I'd stolen a, a giant novelty sausage from a supermarket, which wasn't the worst of my my um, my rock bottoms, to be honest. But I just felt like utter utter rubbish. I couldn't do anything. for I was just lying on a sofa awake, sweating, shaking. I was having the odd bit of water and urinating and that, and I couldn't sleep. I couldn't even watch the television or listen to music. And I thought, no, I'm, I'm done with this. I just cannot go through this anymore. I'm not going to learn to moderate. And I actually, deep down, I don't want to be dead. So let's just, let's just go through that hard graft now. Cause I'd been, I was alcohol dependent. I knew that because I'd been, um, from the local drug and alcohol service and, I'd got myself on um, medication, anti-abuse medication, which meant that I then couldn't drink. It wasn't an option because I'd be straight in hospital. It essentially makes you allergic to alcohol. And I knew that I had to change my my life around a bit. And I went to live with my parents for a while um, just because they live somewhere where I don't know anybody else. They don't drink. It's a safe place. And I knew they wouldn't tolerate my drinking and actually have enough respect for my parents that I wouldn't want to bring drama and chaos into their lives and I I think I needed that change I needed to change my environment in order to change my my actions and my behaviors and it 
I dreaded it. I dreaded moving in with my parents because I moved out when I was 18 and I'd never spent more than like a weekend with them since. And therefore, late 30s, going to live with your parents felt like a bit of a back step. And my dad was dreading it because he knew how I was with alcohol now. I tried to protect him from it for so long, but in the end, he was getting calls from the hospital and like picking me up at 2 a.m. and uh, seeing me at the psychiatric unit. So I couldn't hide that from him anymore. And he was worried about what it would be like living with me but I stayed there for a good three months and a bit and at the end I didn't actually want to go home but you know I wanted (laughs) I knew I had to and my dad didn't want me to go home because we'd really enjoyed our company together and it was the most bonding we had done since I'd been a kid and I absolutely loved it and it's just completely repaired that relationship I had with my father and with my stepmother. Uh, that's powerful as well. Um, you going back to taking any meds, I was the same one night I came in and uh, I'd had enough. I was drunk and I was just scrambling around to take something to, to finish it because I'd had enough, basically. Uh, it took me to a really dark place uh, and I couldn't find anything. But when I I woke up in the morning and was so grateful to have woken up because I kind of remember what I was doing. And and it makes you realise where alcohol can take you. You know, like it's it's taken me to many, many dark places and to want to end your life as well. Is that because you absolutely had enough with yourself or with the drug, the addiction? I had enough of myself. I was just completely absorbed in self-pity. I had... I managed to ruin everything that was good and worthwhile in my life through my drinking. I'd had a really good relationship with my, my second partner and I'd lost that. I'd got a home together, it had taken years and it looked like I was losing that. And I didn't have any friends. I remember it was my birthday and I was looking forward to it. And then I realised I didn't have anyone to invite. It's like my birthday will be probably me and my dad because I pushed everyone else away and I was routinely going to, I I wanted to end my life, but at the same time, I couldn't. And partly because there's because of my dad, I, we lost my mum to suicide when I was a kid and my dad had held the family unit together and with my stepmom and the thought of putting him through all of that again, I wanted to, I felt trapped. I wanted to end my life, but I didn't want to destroy the life of my dad and my stepmom and the few people left through that act. And so I never followed through with it completely. I had some attempts and I was going to bed routinely. I mean, I I thought this was normal at the time or wasn't as weird as it now seems. I I went to bed normally. I, I might have taken some meds and then I'd take um, a knife with me and put it under my pillow and the idea was that if I became brave or selfish enough during the course of the night and I woke up like feeling like courageous enough that I'd just end my life because the pillow was I got the knife under the pillow and it was at hand and I could just do it and that continues for quite a while Um, and looking back on it now that's just that is a sign probably that you need some help and I tried to get help a few times. I think sometimes overdosing and stuff was an attempt to try and get some some help with my mental health. Um, but when you're trying to get me- help with your mental health and you're also in addiction, I mean, you will be told through the through the NHS that you have to address the addiction first. 
And that's something I was either felt unable to do or unwilling to do. But really, you have no idea what your baseline for your mental health is unless you've got substances out of your system because you've got to deal with the addictions first because you might find that once you've dealt with the addictions, your mental health is actually in a completely different place to how you otherwise would be. And so, yeah, I, I was trying to... I was trying to cheat the system there. I wanted to get the help with the mental health because the mental health was the problem in my mind. It's like not not the addiction. And I could, if you sourced out the mental health, maybe I'd learn to be a moderate drinker. But unfortunately, it, it doesn't work like that when you're trying to access services. And so eventually I just uh, dealt with the addiction. And my mental health is completely different now without counselling and without much work on the mental health. But also it's given me the opportunity to find out what is going on with my mental health for the first time, because uh, I mean, I've had an assessment for ADHD, which, um, and I'm going through the process of a diagnosis. And I mean, it makes a lot more sense. Um, I've always been in trouble at school. I've always been mouthy. I can't concentrate on anything. I live in chaos and disarray. Lots of people with addiction issues struggle from ADHD that's undiagnosed. But I would never be at this point now. I haven't got the official sort of certificate and I'm not medicated, but I wouldn't have even got this far if I hadn't stopped drinking in the first place because you can put down a lot of the symptoms of your mental health to alcohol. But even stripped of the alcohol, my mental health is so much better now. I'm a lot happier now, but I still live in chaos. I can't focus on things. I get lost all the time. I, it takes me. It took me three attempts to get to Sainsbury's at the end of my road yesterday because I kept on forgetting where I was going and would turn up at friends' house and then think, oh, no, I wasn't going there. Um, but that is the sort of chaos I live in. But I wouldn't be making any strides towards maybe addressing that if I hadn't addressed the alcohol first. Well, you, you said in the beginning about losing stuff or, you know, like your phone and your keys and that. Um, and that's, you blame it immediately on the drinking, but it, it could be your ADHD. And I did um, a podcast with Jenny Valentish and um, she writes a whole piece in her book, Women of Substances, about ADHD. And the more we bring this up, the more people are coming forward and saying, oh my God, I've just been diagnosed with ADHD. And I, I'm really thinking about get, getting myself a diagnosis because my concentration is awful. I'm writing a book at the minute and I'll write two lines and then I don't know what I've written, look back at it. If I, I can't read a book, I have to listen to an audio book. It, it, there's so many things that are coming up since I stopped drinking that are making me think actually, was it there in the first place without the alcohol? Just blame the booze on it all. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, if I'm interested in something, I can become obsessive about it and I can like, do it for hours. If I'm not interested in something, it's almost impossible for me to make progress. Yeah. <laughs> which is a bit, but I can become interested in really weird things. Like I became interested in a while on, on irregular Russian verbs. I mean, what? <laughs> and then it's like, oh, I'm meant to be doing some work today, but I've been learning the odd verb instead. When um, you gave up drinking, what were the first few weeks like for you? Um, the first few weeks of giving up drinking for me were boring, very boring. Um, lots of um, Netflix. I got really sick of Netflix very quickly. Um, I My sleep was completely erratic. I would go to bed early, but not sleep until 5 a.m. And then I'd fall asleep halfway through the afternoon. And every time I tried to get myself to sleep, I was denied it. And when I was trying to stay awake, um, I'd fall asleep. I didn't know what to do with myself. So just reading. Actually, I really enjoyed some of the reading. I, I hadn't read for years. 
and I found that quite I was I didn't read any quit lit. That didn't really interest me, but I was interested in Russian verbs. <laughs> Russian verbs. I didn't do that during my recovery. I'd already been and done that whilst I was addicted. But um I was I started getting interested in in philosophy. Um, but I had no background in it. So I was reading some sort of a uh, lighthearted, like um, brief history of philosophy books. And I found I really got into it because everything that you think is an original thought isn't. And also it was I found it really helpful in recovery because I was getting a new way of looking at the world because we can become so wound up in our own existence and become quite selfish in it. And looking at different people's views of the the reason for being alive and what happiness is and the value of sort of human connection, all those things. I'm, I found that was, that was my quitlet, just being able to view the world from other people's perspectives and questioning what's important and what's real. And I really enjoyed that part of it and reading some memoirs. I still haven't read a huge amount of quitlet, but I don't think you necessarily have to read quitlet to to quit i think you need to find things that absorb you you need to find interests that absorb you you need to find people who understand what you're trying to achieve with your life and who sympathize and don't try and drag you back into drinking people who would be as willing to meet you for a coffee as they were maybe in the pub or other sober people has been a bit of a a bit of a game changer for me because all the people i knew and socialized with i knew them from the pub and they were fellow heavy drinkers i think when you drink to the extent that I did and you become the sort of arsehole that I became through drink quite a lot of the time the only people who are willing to tolerate your company are very forgiving people and the reason is they're forgiving is because they're usually in the same boat as you you will forgive them because you behave that way as well so you end up it's it's like that echo chamber isn't it and I think you attract what you put out and I was putting out very drunk vibes and attracting people who connected with that so as a result when I went sober I knew no one really and I had to completely change my social circle which took a long time I just wanted things to fall into place immediately but it took me a good while to find find my tribe I think the young people say don't they <laughs> the young people <laughs> well, you're, you're my expert on this topic of sort of youth speak because I know you're like really down with the kids I am I am bro so you created your page right and i think i met you at matt's boat party is that the first time i've met you or is it at the comedy club i saw you sort of from a distance at the comedy club but we didn't speak because we are different parts of the comedy club and then i met you just before the uh matt pink boat party um earlier this year and that's when uh, the first time we spoke we um we met up early didn't we we went to this um this somerset house by the Thames. Yeah, yeah. i think it was but yeah. their bar hadn't opened. So we went to the um, bar and apparently they got some good alcohol-free drinks, but it never opened. So we just sat there outside. And for some reason, the only drink I had with me was um, a bottle of um, oh, yeah. Nose Echo. And I hadn't got any glasses either. I mean, who does that? Brings a bottle of, with no glasses. So, And it was really hot. And I was getting thirsty. The The bar wasn't opening. So I thought, sod it. And I popped open the bottle of Nose Echo and was just um, slugging it from the bottle like the good old days um, with, and trying to hand that round. Strangely, people weren't really taking me up on the offer of um, necking Nose Echo. And there was this couple nearby um, who were giving giving some dirty evils. They were they were very unimpressed with this. It was, it was just before 12 midday. And there's this... Um, sort of slightly podgy camp man 
necking wine for all they could see and they moved away in disgust and that felt made me feel quite happy actually how you can be so shocking drinking sparkling um, grape juice uh, before 12 i mean if you've been doing it sort of by nine o'clock that's socially acceptable isn't it because you're allowed to drink neat alcohol in the evening that's just yeah, that's society yeah. but yeah. Th- there's certain times when it's acceptable and certain times and places where it's looked down upon and i like the fact that when we're sober we can still be seen as disgusting rebels i mean i did get in trouble at weatherspoons for sneaking in some alcohol-free rum into my coat before they came up and they questioned me about it but they don't have very good alcohol-free options there and i'd snuck it out my bag and i'd been getting their coke which was a bit flat and horrible and i'd been making it a bit nicer all these years of drinking at weatherspoons my local one is very hard to get chucked out or banned from because it's just such a dive um and the first time i get in trouble amazingly at weatherspoons was for sneaking in an alcohol-free drink into my flat pepsi max and i like that we can be rebels in sobriety uh do you know what i've met william porter in a few weatherspoons it's his favorite right Uh, and actually i thought that a good good um it's not bad actually there's no there's none of the spirits but they've got some good kombuchas and things these days they've got Uh, yeah they have options actually out of all the chain pubs they are certainly one of the better ones for the alcohol-free options. I think that and Bill's restaurants, they're good. And the lounges, bars, they've always named something lounge. So for me in South End, it's called, we've got Molo Lounge because oh. Molo is Italian for pier. So the first part of their name is usually something in Italian that has a, a reference to the town. But they've got some good Colonia drinks and other alcohol-free options. And to be fair to Weatherspoons, they've got more options than most. But I like, I like me... Um, my spirits, my alcohol-free spirits, and that's, they're still hard to find in restaurants and bars and uh, pubs. And but I think they're going to catch up. And and you've never had a problem um, during your sobriety of going into pubs because a lot of people find it triggering. I did. I did find it difficult at first. I didn't go to any for a good while, and then the first time I did, I found it a lot more difficult than I thought. And that's because everyone was getting hammered around me. There was loud music, so conversation wasn't really happening. Then everyone was so drunk that conversation couldn't happen. And I just found myself trying to look after people. And every time I went out, it became similar. I would I'd go out. I would um, it would start off well until everyone had had three drinks, and then they become they're just talking over each other and repeating themselves. And then I'm feeling like I have to look after them. And I end up staying, being the last person to leave because I was be making sure that everyone went home. And it was just, a, it was no fun at all. What I sort of soon learned after that was that it wasn't so much the going out into pubs that was a problem. It was who I was with. I'd go to some quiz nights at the pub. There, it was normally middle of the week. People weren't drinking as heavily. And there was an activity other than drinking to focus on. So the quiz, I'd go to some music nights during the week. And again, the focus wasn't just the drinking. And that I'd also find people who were going out for reasons other than just drinking, who actually wanted the the connection part. They might, they'd be drinking, but they weren't drinking to excess and you could have a conversation with them. So for me now, I don't find pubs triggering. It's more who I'm with. So if I'm with the right people, I could go to a pub, I could go to a festival if I'm with people who are going to sort of not pressure me to drink or are actually going to be, I'm going to enjoy their company because they're not repeating themselves. So for me, it's more the company than the place. And I still go to pubs a fair amount. Um, it tends to be weeknights when it's less rowdy and it tends to be something else going on. But I still enjoy pubs. So um, you mentioned quiz nights. Yeah. You were part of a quiz team, right? And um, how successful were you? Oh, terrible. 
Um, <laughs> I go because it's an excuse to meet some people regularly once a month. Um, there's only four of us in our quiz team. We should need to recruit another couple, but I'd have terrible general knowledge. They never have like rounds on Russian verbs, um, surprisingly. <laughs> I mean, they've never got an etymology round. All the things I'm interested in that are weird, nobody else, there's, there aren't rounds on that. I know nothing about music or celebrity. And even when I do, I can't remember names. I've never been able to remember people's names. So it's just not going to happen. But I think that the important lesson there is you don't have to be good at your hobbies. It's important that you have hobbies and things that you enjoy. You don't have to be good at them because you're not trying to make a living from it. Then just enjoy it for what it is. I enjoy going out and doing terribly at quizzes. Um, we came uh, third from last last time, so that's an improvement. But we just have a laugh. Um, the quiz we attend is shambolically organised. There's always disputes, and I just find it I just sit there with my popcorn and watch people getting upset um, because they think they've got the right answer and they're sort of disagreeing with the, the quiz master. I love it. Terrible at the quiz. Um, I think one of us won a Mars bar the other day. <laughs> um, no, it wasn't. It was a it was a pack of chocolate and a fiver. Um, that was because there's a little sort of bingo bit. But we have never won. Um, in fact, we've never got onto the podium. So, but it doesn't matter because we have fun. And that's like most of my hobbies. I'm not particularly good at them, but I enjoy them. Do you know what though, mate? Seriously, you've talked about the lows of where you got in your life. And what your partner said as well about living life is really powerful, I think. And, and you do come across as quite content now. Yeah, I do feel content most of the time. I have ups and I have downs. I'll go for a few days where I just feel really down still, but I have far more up days than down. And now that I'm sober, if I do have a down period, I rebound from it a lot quicker, I've noticed. I can feel really awful. And then in the old days, I'll drink and then I'll drag that feeling of awfulness out for days, weeks, months. Now I can feel really awful, get an early night, and wake up and think, actually, I'm feeling a lot better today. I can, <laughs> I don't have to drag it out anymore. I can sit there with feeling awful, process it, rest, and then not feel awful anymore. So yeah, the the rebound is uh, from from bad feelings is is a lot quicker. I still get very stressed. I'm learning to deal with stress more. I mean, at the moment, I'm very stressed because I don't have a job in two weeks, and I let myself get like almost sort of ill with stress for about two days. And then I got onto it. I've got two job interviews in the next few days for positions that are starting in a couple of weeks. So whereas before, I think I'd have drunk it away, wouldn't have made any progress with getting my CV out there. And I'd have made my outcomes a lot worse and given myself even more reason to be stressed. So, yeah, I'm not going to pretend that life when you're sober is perfect. Um, it's still a bit of a roller coaster. My highs aren't as high and my lows aren't as low. And I, I just enjoy that steady medium a lot more. I really relate to that because I think as well, I mean, I've had so many people come to me and they say, oh, it's not what I thought it would be sobriety. And I say, well, what do you think it's going to be? That everything's going to be a miracle and everything's going to change and there's going to be fanfares and trumpets? Because a lot of the time it's really difficult. But I think certainly for me, it's about finding balance. And like, if I have a bad day, which I do, it's not to blame it that there's something wrong with sobriety, that am I doing something wrong? And also it's about being realistic about it, that I'm going to have bad days. And I accept that in that day and I get up the next day and start again. 
And I would never do that before. It, it one would roll into the next, and then roll into the next, and it's like it would be a shit week. But each time I have a bad day now, I almost like wipe the slate clean a bit, like one day at a time. And I've brought that into my life now, and it works for me anyway. I have bad days now, but my I think when I was drinking, it would be more that I thought I've got a bad life. That was my mindset. I have a bad life and it's me against the world and it sucks. But now I can have a bad day without letting it equate to a bad life. I can and I can put it to bed and I can have a good day as well. A lot of it is is mindset. And I still have a lot of good days. And sometimes I I still get as much of a buzz socializing without alcohol as I did with. A while back I was running alcohol free events in South End and I used to feel like I'd had a really good night out. And I used to have others say that to me as well. It's like, I feel like, I feel like I've just come back from like a, an amazing night out. And I'd, I'd make sure that I finished it in the proper way as well by getting a kebab on the way home and eating in bed. <laughs> and that buzz that you get, a lot of the buzz you get from a good night out is actually the, the buzz you get from socializing. Yeah. It's not just the alcohol. The alcohol might make, make it feel easier to socialize with people and loosen up, but you get a, a massive rush and a massive buzz just from, being sociable and finding human connection and so yeah i still i still get that sometimes and i don't have all the uh, the anxiety and the hangover that ruins your life along the way so oh, yeah i definitely prefer prefer life sober there's that thing in there connections the opposite of addiction and some people they don't quite understand and but that's proof of it because i even in my app you're in there and uh, there's such a lovely community in here that can mm share stuff with people that understand you they get you like so if you was talking to me now about gambling and you said oh i lost 50 quid in the horse i'd wonder what the hell you were doing putting 50 quid on it anyway i just i wouldn't get it i don't understand it myself it's a place a safe space that we can go to say we're having a bad day or we we've got cravings or we miss going out of a drink or we got a holiday coming up don't know what to do so it's that connection but on these real live events, I've held four now. I find I'm absolutely exhausted after them. It's like <laughs> brain overload. And a lot of people have said it as well. Like the next day, they shattered. They tend to be 12 hours, your events as well. <laughs> By the time, oh, you would. And um, yeah, I, I went away for a holiday and I, I, that was a sober holiday, you know, with my parents. And I was absolutely zonked for two days afterwards. I still feel like I need a holiday to recover from the holiday. And I haven't exactly had a wristband on and an all-inclusive bar. And even this morning, I'm, I felt really tired. I was going to get up because I've committed myself to doing a bloody 10K run with Matt Pink now. That backfired. Yeah, it's something that really backfired badly. Uh, but I'm now committed so I, to doing a 10K run in two months. Wow. And um, I saw so I was going to get up at 5 a.m., but I'd eaten so much cake last night. <laughs> I couldn't sleep. I think it was all the sugar. And then I didn't sleep until about three o'clock. And then, of course, I didn't get up at five. And then when I did wake up, I still felt I felt groggy. I felt like I was hungover a bit. Not as yeah. bad as a hangover. But, yeah, that was just um, being sociable, eating, eating too much cake still does does take it out of you. Maybe that part that's old age as well. Well, you're a young spring of a lad. But also a sugar hangover as well, probably. I didn't realise that existed. Yeah, it does, yeah. Well, yeah, this this cake, well, it did contain two packets of to- chocolate digestives, a, a tin 
of uh, condensed milk, caramel flavoured, and um, quite a lot of sugar. And but yeah, it could have been a sugar hangover thinking about it. That that wasn't the only bit of cake I had that day, and I, I had a quarter of the cake, which was meant to feed eight. So yeah, apparently sugar hangover is a thing. I learned that this morning. Oh, I've been getting questions. So um, I'm actually meeting you on Saturday in Brighton, of all places. Yes, you are. And um, are you going to be sporting your brown corduroy trousers, or are you going to be that fat by then that you won't get in them? I actually feel really flattered that you think I'm that organised. I've thought about what I'm going to wear. Um, I'll probably take my my usual approach, which is look frantically around the flat at the last minute and put on whatever smells the least and has the fewest creases and then try and assemble it in such a way that it looks like I intended to do that. So <laughs> it waits to be seen. I've already got my outfit out for you. It's all hanging Have up you? in the other room, yeah. I'm going to surprise you, though. Are you going to be wearing your leopard print? Underneath, yeah. Underneath? Yeah. Oh, I can't wait. <laughs> These are the pri- private conversations we've been having on WhatsApp. Anyway, moving on a bit, mate, it's like for anyone listening to this who can really relate to it, what would your tips be for people to start to address their relationship with alcohol? I think, first of all, you've got to be honest with yourself. If you're trying to address your relationship with alcohol, how much of a problem is it? Don't wait until it's wrecked your life before you take action. I mean, I... When I started, first started going to the alcohol clinic, I, I'd turn up and there, I'd be there with um, people who were sort of street drinkers and heroin users. And I'd think, oh, that's not that's not me. I've still got a job and a home. Therefore, I can't be an alcoholic because I haven't lost everything yet. And that's completely the wrong mindset because you soon could lose everything. The trick is to take action before you have lost everything, not wait until you feel like you've already lost everything before you take action. So noticing the problem is the first bit. And also, you've got to believe that you can stop, that you can recover, because I was a bit pathetic, actually. I used to um, I used to think recovery isn't possible for me. I can't stop drinking. I'd find all these um, reasons why I couldn't stop drinking. It was genetic, because I've got a long line of alcoholics in my family. Um, I'm half Scottish, again, therefore, you know, Scottish people drink a lot. The, all the alcoholics in my family were Scottish. And that, therefore, I, I had whiskey running through my veins, that I was a useless person and that some people just can't change. A leopard can't change its spots. I'd find any justification to think why I was the exception to the rule. But people stop drinking and change their lives around every day. And you probably are not that special that you are the only exception to the rule. And if you genuinely can't believe that recovery is possible for you, then at least, at the very least, be willing to suspend belief and trust other people and prove yourself wrong. Because it's it's nice to be proven right, but sometimes the best thing is when you prove yourself wrong, when you have all these doubts about yourself, and that you then go on to prove that everything you thought was complete bullshit, and you're capable of more. So if you can't believe that it's possible for you, just be willing to suspend that belief and prove yourself wrong, and ask for help. Look, you're probably not hiding your drink or substance problem as well as you think you're probably doing a really miserable job at it and the first the only person you're fooling is yourself and it's really scary to admit you've got a problem and ask for help but when I did that I remember doing it on my personal Facebook profile 
once before and sort of coming out that I had a problem and I wouldn't be accepting offers of going out for a drink but I'd love to keep contact and it'd be nice to meet some of you for a coffee because it's a bit lonely at the moment and the amount of support and kindness I received from people that I'd known from for years and hidden any of my problems for it was it just it was really quite emotional. I was expecting people would just sort of probably not want to know me because I was a I was a dirty drinker or I was an alcoholic, and there's such stigma attached to that. But that isn't what happened. What happened was people were supportive and kind. And I always used to think when I was an addiction that people are generally horrible, that people are bad, and through sobriety, I've completely reevaluated that. And in general, people are kind and they want the best for you. So reach out. Um, don't be scared. Um, you might find that things work out a lot better than you could have hoped for. Amazing, Michael. And I always say, what have you got to lose by trying? Nothing really, because you've lost a lot of it anyway. And I'm not talking about possessions. I'm talking about self-esteem um value self-value you know i i that is why i drank in on my own and i used to sit there talking to myself just saying what am i doing what am i doing i like it was a weird i can't i need to explore it even more to try and get into my head of and maybe i never will but it was like an out-of-body experience uh, mm. and one that i didn't ever feel i could get out of so what you've just said there is really valuable because there are people that can be examples like us people in the sober community from all walks of life that have all got the same thing in common. We've all got ourselves in a pickle with a drinking, but we've all got a different backstory and we've somehow clawed our way out of it and are managing to live a life without it. And I think that's the important message there because I never believed that would happen for me, especially I'm a little bit older than you, only a little bit. That surprises me, Dave. Yeah. I'd still classify you as a twink. Well, yeah, I, I use an expensive face cream and I've got a filter on my Zoom camera as well. So it's more so like... So I might be in for a shock when I turn up in Brighton on Saturday and see the evil Skeletor sort of uh, <laughs> well, yeah, you're being for a shock when I'm I'm going to go after this to the charity shop to try and find some brown corduroys. So and leopard skin. So I'm going to see the evil Skeletor in corduroys and leopard skin. Oh, my God, yeah. this is going to be amazing. I'm going to share the photos. Yeah, okay. That's amazing. I can't wait. But, yeah, seriously, we can get out of this. And these are why these conversations are really valuable. And uh, I know you're a cheeky chappy. And uh, quite often when I see your stories, I... I sort of dread that it's going to be about me, but it's in an indignant <laughs> way as well, because I, I know you do whip into a couple of people, which is quite uh, obviously bitten you right on the arse because you're doing a 10K, which is really interesting That's, to see. Yeah, I've got two months to go from sort of um, smoking 20 a day to doing a 10K. That rhymes, doesn't it? Okay. Yeah. 20 a day to 10K. Um, so, yeah, I do I do tease people sometimes, and that's always landed me in a bit of trouble in my life. I, I do I do like to um, just, just poke and see if I get a reaction. But this time, I've been teasing Matt Pink for a while on my Instagram, and particularly, I, it's just completely baffles me how he can do a 10K before I've even got out of bed. But not only that, his um, there's not a hair out of place. I know. And, he hadn't, and he's, he's not drenched with sweat. And so I was pointing this out and I, I was asking him for tips. And then I decided I was going to just do my hair and then 
run 1k and see what I look like. And I was a bit of a mess, to be honest. And then he said, oh, why don't we do a 10k in South End in September? We'll do it together. And I thought, oh, God, I can't say no now. I've been I've been teasing you mercilessly. I can't now say, no, I'm not going to do a 10k. Otherwise, I'd be a complete pussy. So I said, as long as we do it to raise money for an alcohol charity, I'm up for it. Um, I immediately regret that because I don't know if I'd survive, to be honest. But we'll find out. All I've got to do is stay alive and, and, and raise a bit of money and, and, and try and run. Bloody cake with condensed milk and 14 packets of chocolate hobnobs in it. Yeah, apparently that's off the menu now for a couple of months. Yeah. Maybe there can be one of those waiting for me at the finish line. Yeah. And that can be my motivation. Or me and my cordial. Actually, in September in Southend, now I'm in Honolulu uh, opening a rehab centre out there for the whole of September. So unfortunately, oh, I can't uh, be roped into it. <laughs> the Honolulu rehab. Well, you know what? They call Southend the Honolulu of Essex. So you could just sack them off. Um, no. I'll get you some jelly deals. And go for a paddle in the mud. I remember I did a 60 minute makeover in, um, uh, South End and, uh, one of the designers had never left Wales. And this was the first time when this was our experience of leaving Wales with going to South End. And we had fish and chips along the front on this bench, right? And there was a, a pub behind the fish and chip shop that everyone was standing outside listening to the music, but they had their own cans in brown bags or bottles and whatever. They wouldn't even go in the pub, but they were getting the entertainment from, from <laughs> you nodding your head there thinking, well, yeah, that's, that's normal. I used to drink from, well, it was black bags mainly, but <laughs> yeah, that, that does make, that does make it a little bit cheaper, but um, I, I wouldn't be surprised. We've got um, an interesting mix along the seafront, but yeah, it's, um, it, it might have changed a bit. I think I think it's up and coming. We're, we're going to be the, the next Brighton. We've just become a city. Good things are going to happen to this town. Sorry, good things are going to happen to this city now on the sea. If you haven't been for a while, check it out. Um, if nothing else, we've got loads of excellent charity shops and phone accessories. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much the high street, charity shops and phone accessory shops. But we also have eight miles of beautiful sand and mud. Um, I thoroughly recommend a visit. And uh, Matt Pink's going there as well. He is. What a treat for him. I'm going to make a day of it. I'm going to do a social, try and get some music together. And uh, it's, being serious, it's, it's, it's a nice place to go. If you're in London, day trip, South End, just, you know, it's an hour away. It's got everything you could want. Well, as I say, I'm in Honolulu in September. So, 15. Michael, I'm so grateful you've joined me today. And uh, thanks for being so honest as well. Uh, I know we've had to laugh, but it's a serious subject and um, I appreciate your truth and honesty. And I want to say congratulations on your 500 days, you legend. Thank you so much. You are a gentleman. And uh, I will see you on Saturday. I might actually wear my grass skirt that I'm taking to Honolulu instead of my brown corduroys. So how does that float your boat? So grass skirt, bottom half, leopard print, top half. Yeah, I might have a little. I've got some uh, a coconut brassiere. Oh, excellent. I was going to suggest tassels, but a coconut brassiere could uh, also be I could put quite, quite a feast got, for the eyes. Yeah, I've got nipple clamps that I could put on the end of the thing. So yeah, Maybe we'll save those for the after party, eh? Oh, mate. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, mate, for joining me, and uh, I'll see you Saturday. Okay, see you Saturday. Cheers. Thanks for your time. Bye, mate. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of One for the Road. Please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can now download my app 
Sober Dave on the Apple and Google Play Store. And on there you will find lots of tutorials, tips and support to help you stop drinking. And there are also meditation audios, food plans and chat forums. You can also find me on Instagram at Sober Dave. Please remember to join me for next week's episode. But until then, thanks for listening and have a great week.